Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we pleadedly, like pants, discuss the novelizations of any film fortunate enough to have one. Of course, this being an Authorized bonus episode, we will not be discussing a novelization, but rather we will be discussing a movie. Now, in our previous bonus episode, the concept or the way we stretched our premise was to say, what if we discussed a movie about books as opposed to talking about a book based on a movie? Uh, this time we are stretching our premise to the point of absolutely breaking its back. Uh, there were other book movies and you decided to go for this well, non-book movie. Well, and so I, I, he's saving know. them. Here's the thing is that I, want, <laughs> I, I would like it if we had like two or three genres of bonus episode so that we could do like one of these each season type of thing, you know? You're just making it sound like we were digging through the bottom of the barrel and we came <laughs> up with this, which I don't think is accurate. Well, if we, if we only did book movies, we would maybe be running out really quickly. We'd be doing like Passion of the Christ very quickly. Like, <laughs> I don't think that's a movie about books. Okay, fair. Hot fair. take. Uh, it's more about scrolls. You're right, Hannah. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. And we will never, ever cover scrolls. That's Fuck a promise. No. Heck no. If we, uh, if we find any like books that were lost to time, like but they're <laughs> scrolls, we ain't touching uh-uh. them. <laughs> I thought, I thought the uh, Good Burger sequel was written on a scroll. Uh, it was, it was, but I was so dedicated to my principles that I, Ugh. I like made a little Gutenberg press and I, I, I pressed it into a book. <laughs> Thank God, because I can't believe that you would disrespect my principles that way. <laughs> <laughs> the premise that we're going with this time, new genre of bonus episode is we are friends that host this podcast. This podcast started when many of us had not met at all in person ever, and... We're going to start doing movies about long-distance friendships, which, while not related to novelizations, feels about as specific as we only do the novelizations of films. Above all else, we are niche. Um, So I did the hard work. I went on Reddit, and I said, Hey, movies subreddit, what are some movies about long-distance friendships? And then I sat back and let them roll in. (laughs) Today we are doing uh, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which is, of course, a movie. Movies. Based on a book. Ah! Okay, we can get into this right now. (laughs) It is important to me that the listener, the co-host, and everyone understands that we are not covering this movie because it is based on a book. I would never do that. I know. Or the Jane Austen book club was also no. I get it. I I get it. No, that one we didn't know though. This is like a theory of knowledge type of thing. I'm not talking <laughs> about action. I'm talking about intention. We can, of course, cover a movie based on a book, but we will never cover it because it was based on a book. We will yeah. arrive at it by another means. So perfect. We covered a movie based, uh, uh, or not based, but a movie that was about a book club, the Jane Austen book club. Yeah, it happened to be based on a book, but who cares? And then now we're doing a movie about long distance friendship, and I don't know, maybe it's based on a book. Who can remember? Anywho, movies are outright deceptions. We're in the <laughs> <laughs> we're in the content of a story more or less, is completely unmoored from the name of the film. Movies titles include words like pants, but then are not about pants at all. 
It would be satisfying to maybe follow the titular pants as they are mailed from character to character. While that sort of happens, there's long stretches of films where no one is wearing the pants and no one is talking about the pants, and it's not even really clear who has them at the moment. Additionally, movies contain parallel storylines that wildly vary in quality and severity. Half are based on totally manufactured conflicts that contain scant, if any, tension, while the other half are utterly devoted to the devastating realism of love and loss. Movies ask you to observe characters wondering if they should kiss people. I'm going to take that again. Movies a- <laughs> I'm going to take sorry, that again. Sorry. It's funny. No, you're good. Movies ask you to observe characters wondering if they should kiss people who definitely want to kiss them. Back. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> kiss their back. Kiss their back. All right. What movies do you watch? This is ta- this is take 4, famously Four's the charm. Let's do it. Woo! <laughs> Movies ask you to observe characters wondering if they should kiss people who definitely want to kiss them back, while also asking you to behold a daughter re-experiencing her core trauma of parental abandonment, as well as a mentor figure grappling with her protege succumbing to childhood leukemia. Like, they actually cut from that to, will my hot Greek crush go swimming with me? We are your hosts, a loose coalition of clothing enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants is a 2005 American dramedy directed by Ken Quapis. The screenplay is by Delia Efron and Elizabeth Chandler and was based on the 2001 novel of the same name by Anne Brashears. Brashears? I'm not quite sure on pronunciation. The film follows Lena, Tibby, Carmen, and Bridget, four inseparable teenagers who anxious about spending their first summer vacation apart, enact a plan to remain connected across great distances. The friends discover what they believe to be a pair of magical denim jeans that fit all of them perfectly, when in reality they are obviously unwilling participants in some sort of double-blind market test of the first ever pair of jeggings. (laughs) Nevertheless, our quartet decides to mail the pants to one another throughout the summer as a physical token of their connectedness. Uh, as some members of the sisterhood find the magic propelling them into romantic bliss, others draw upon the pants to maintain resolve in the face of harrowing tragedy. Ultimately, jaggings go to market and experience modest success. You're you're muted. I'm going to take yeah, my last yeah, line. I, I, had just to, God, damn I had to mute that because my dog was barking. So he's been a lot more of a handful recently. You have a dog too? Yeah, I got a menagerie over here. And no pants? All right, I'm going to take the last line again just so I have it better. Yeah, it's quite funny. I was, I was, I, I, I really felt like you underplayed it. <laughs> well, I, 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 words are hard to read. Uh huh. Ultimately, jeggings go to market and experience modest success. Okay, put a lot of sauce on it that time. All right. <laughs> Who is Ken Quapis? Ken Quapis was born in East St. Louis, Illinois in 1957. He was the son of an oral surgeon and attended Northwestern University in Evanston, where I live, before entering a prolific career of film and television work. That's where Aaron Samuels went. That is where many of the Mean Girls characters went. Yeah, (laughs) I would say a large large proportion of them. Um, That's where Jake Johnson and every Jake Johnson character is from. 
I feel like I might not have been recording my own thing and I'm freaked out. <laughs> oh no. Ultimately, jeggings go to market and experience not a success. <laughs> I'll give myself options. Who is Ken Quapis? Ken Quapis was born in East St. Louis, Illinois in 1957. He was the son of an oral surgeon and attended Northwestern University in Evanston, where I live. And when we did the first take, we mentioned Mean Girls, so don't get honest about it. Before entering a prolific career of film and network television work. He got his start on CBS and ABC, directing the Freaky Friday sequel Summer Switch for ABC. I already said ABC. In Summer Switch, the male members of the Andrews family from Freaky Friday... uh, find that they have switch bodies, forcing the son to negotiate a Hollywood career while the father indulges in the carefree whims of summer camp. Apparently the- er- again. What's that? Uh, sorry, I was making a joke on the film <clears throat> 17 again, where an, uh, an adult mm-hmm. becomes 17 again. Um, I'm, gonna, I, I'm sorry, guys. I am definitely having some sort of audio issue. Does this mean I get to make my Jake Johnson joke again? <laughs> Ultimately, jeggings go to market <laughs> and experience modest success. <laughs> All right. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, I can see my voice being recorded. I just want to know this who this great. Ken Quapis is. Ken Quapis. Musical guest, Ken Quapis. <laughs> <laughs> who is Ken Quapis? Ken Quapis was born in East St. Louis, Illinois in 1957. He was the son of an oral surgeon and attended Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And this is like our fourth take, and we've done a bunch of ad-libs on this. And I, one time I was like, I live there. And then, Andrew, you said something. That's where Aaron Samuels went in Mean Girls. And I was like, that's all of Mean Girls was here because it's Evanston. Anyway, it was really great. Um He went there before entering a prolific career of film and television work. He got his start on CBS and ABC, directing the Freaky Friday sequel Summer Switch for ABC. In Summer Switch, the male members of the Andrews family from Freaky Friday find that they have switched bodies, forcing the son to negotiate a Hollywood career while the father indulges in the carefree whims of summer camp. Apparently, the original Freaky Friday never explains how the mom switched bodies with her daughter, but does suggest that it was an intentional switch orchestrated by the mother, which I found weird. Hmm. So how does it happen to the father and the son, too? Are they like, is it is it like the marriage of a witch and a, and a warlock? Anywho. Andrew, continue. This some bug. Oh, this is this is more stuff about Freaky Friday. I said, oh, my God. Is this some bug that's going around? This is like, uh, this is good material, don't you think? Um, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to go uh, go back to some open mic. So I'm trying some stuff out. Um, <laughs> you're, you're all right. Ken five. Me, you're killing me. <laughs> yeah, my Ken is five. Uh, you got, yeah, that would be a good thing. If, if I was doing like a, a, a Jay Leno type thing, but people actually hadn't heard of it. So I was like, you heard about this? You heard about this Ken Quapis guy? And people were like, no. <laughs> no, I have not. Okay. I think Hannah's Ooh. about to quit the podcast. <laughs> Quapis then directed his first feature film, The Banneker Gang, which was about five orphans who run away together to form their own family. Despite its heavy premise, the tagline celebrates one for all and all for fun. Yeah. Quapis continued to direct. Sorry, Andrew, what's that? It was me. I was making a joke. I hate you. Sorry, Hannah, what's that? Nothing. Continue. I was almost named Hannah. Really? Yeah. That's fine. I was almost named Kevin. 
I was never almost named anything. You were a Hannah from the jump. Mm-hmm. You seem like a palindrome person. Thank you. Guy, you guys want to hear more about Quapus? No, I want to tell one thing about myself. I was, I was not, I, I don't have like a, if I was a boy alternate name because uh-huh. my parents always knew I was going to be a girl, but they maybe were going to name me Samantha James and then they didn't. Changed a, their mind smoky name. when I was born. Yeah. Would have been hot. It but. is funny that it's so much more colorful of a name and then, then you Hannah were born Sam's. and they were like, this no, is she's a, boring. this is a Hannah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Don't get me started. Keep talking about Quapis. You wrote way too much about him. <laughs> Quapis continued to direct features like He Said, She Said, a romantic comedy in which events are recounted twice, once by the man and once by the woman. Okay. The discrepancy in their stories, no doubt, must lend themselves to some laughs. The portions of the film told from the male perspective, Kevin Bacon, were directed by Quapis, whereas the female portions, starring Elizabeth Perkins, were directed by Marissa Silver. Quapis and Silver later married and are together to this day. Ken made his foray into television with an installment of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, followed by directing the pilot of The Larry Sanders Show. From this point forward, he coexisted in the TV and film worlds alike, directing for such projects as Dunstan Checks In, The Bernie Mac Show, and Malcolm in the Middle. In 2005, the same year that he directed Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, Quapis helped to develop the U.S. remake of The Office, which he would direct the pilot, 100th episode, and series finale for, among other episodes. Quapis' golden touch as TV workman has waned a bit since 2010, with his shows Outsourced, Happyish, and One Mississippi all being short-lived. Now, the Happyish one is not exactly his fault, because that's the one where he was doing a comedy like built around Philip Seymour Hoffman and then Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away. Quapis continues to direct to this day and fitting to its title is eternally rumored to be returning for the third sisterhood film, the very religion evoking moniker sisterhood everlasting, despite having not been involved in the second film. Can I jump right in with something about that third film? Cause I, I, I did a tiny bit of research. We have finally reached the end of the tome that I wrote. So yes, you may. Please. So, so I was sitting with uh, my girlfriend Collins, and we were watching Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants today, and I knew there was a second one. And she said, oh, I'm surprised I never made the third one. There were three books. So I went to the Wikipedia, and I read up and found that while the first film is based off the first book, the second movie is based off the fourth book hmm. with elements of the second and third book. And the plot for the fifth movie, which, uh, fifth book, excuse me, which is also called Sisterhood Everlasting, is nuts. And how? Uh, so Tibby, played by Amber Tamblin. Wait, I want to uh, stop you for a second. Hannah, you, you said that phrase wrong. You're, when you agree with someone, you're supposed to say, and how? Well, what I was saying was, and, question mark, question mark. How, question mark, question mark, Mr. Overby? Okay, agree to disagree. <laughs> so as I remember from the Wikipedia entry, <laughs> uh, in the the fifth book in the series, which is set 10, 15 years later, so it would actually be able to be adapted with more adult versions of these characters, Tibby 
uh, finds out she has Huntington's disease uh, and then gives birth to a baby and then accidentally drowns like at the oh. beginning of the book. And in the rest of the story is about like the sisterhood dealing with the loss of Tibby. God, can't that girl catch a break? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tibby's got the worst plot of them all. Jeez Louise. <laughs> I, but and you say that, but the fifth book is also still the Alexis Bledel character being like, oh, "I really like that Greek boy." Oh my god, that Alexis Bledel <laughs> character, Jesus! Seems like a good launching off point. What did you, <laughs> I, I had not seen this film before? I, I think Hannah, you said that you have, right? Yeah, and I read the first two books. I want to say when I was but a, a young person. Sure, Andrew. Do you have any existing relationship to the Sisterhood? I believe, you know, uh, my initiation into the sisterhood was that the trailer must have been on several DVDs I owned (laughs) back before it was easy to skip to the menu. So I've seen the trailer many, many times. Like, I feel the the girl, the leukemia girl passing out in the Walmart stand in is in the trailer because I remember Mm -hmm. that moment vividly having Mm -hmm. never engaged with this franchise at all. It's as far as it goes. Andrew, what did you think of Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, watching it for the first time? I mean, according to Letterboxd, I liked it more than both of you. <laughs> it is, it is as you said in your intro, it's interesting because it is uneven. There are segments where it's like, well, one, the cast in this movie is stacked from mm-hmm. the main characters down to the supporting players. And it's sort of interesting that, you know, they're all giving it their all, even if the material is sort of uneven. So you have segments like... With Tibby and I'm forgetting, is it, what's the name of the girl who has cancer? Bailey. Why am I the only one who ever remembers character names? What is it? Well, I had a lot of trouble remembering character names in this movie. And I I just had to stop and say to myself, like, at this point, is it sexism? Is it just sexism? (laughs) Like, why am I only having trouble remembering character names in these, in these movies that are like heavily feature female ensembles? I mean, do you remember Bradley Whitford's name in this movie? Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think his name is Dad. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that segment is handled quite well. I think the the America Ferrera storyline with her father in Charleston is quite interesting. And I think there's even some moments, I I think they're not explored as much as they could be, but I think the the Blake Lively storyline and just sort of like, her mother has killed herself. Basically, we find out her mother has killed herself like in the first five minutes of the movie. And that, like, I, f- I wanted to know more of that story. I felt like we didn't get enough of it. But the movie is sort of just constantly barraged with cutting to Greece with Alexis Bledel playing Roy Gilmore. There's no difference between Roy yeah, Gilmore and this that character. Chick's- 100% made of elbows. She's like a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're just watching this plot line and you're just like, why am I... Like, it just, every time something interesting is happening in the movie, they just cut to that. And so it makes it more uneven than I think... Like, if that plot line was either not there or was more dramatically fulfilling, I think you guys would, probably would have enjoyed this movie more, if I'm guessing. I do hate... Lena, she's the worst of the girls. She's really fucking annoying. And her plotline, indeed, is just heinous, just terrible and annoying. She has the cutest boy and the worst plotline. It's so unfair because the boy be cute. Um, That's very unfair to Brian McBrien. Which one is he? 
the guy who plays Dragon's Lair. The oh, movie. he is really cute. I, d- I wish he was in more of the movie, you know? Like, I believe he's in the sequel. Great. He should be. They sh- they are set up to start dating at the end of the movie. If he is, if he better be in Sisterhood Everlasting as like a 40-year-old man playing Dragon's Lair. I hope so. And, and he's like one of those annoying guys who's like, yeah, you know, they don't really have the full game anywhere anymore, so I had to buy a cabinet. <laughs> I just, um, my issue, my main issue with the movie is is the unevenness of the storylines. That, like, I think the two that work best, like the America Ferrera, the Carmen plot with her dad is, like, good teenager drama. The Blake Lively plot, her name is Bridget, right? Bridget. Is, yeah. like, yeah, good teenage drama. She lost her mom. She's pretty fucked up. She's trying to replace that feeling with fucking a boy, and then it doesn't satisfy her. Um, great plot line. But then, like, I have to go to Greece and fall in love. It's like, who? No, no one has that experience. Stop. And then, like, I met a girl and she had cancer and she's dying. It's like such high drama <laughs> that, that it feels like not out of place. Like, these things happen. It's very sad. But if I, you know, as a teenage girl in suburbia, very close to Bethesda, Maryland, by the way, where they all <laughs> live, which felt fucking batshit to me because they treat the town they live in as if it's like, the Hicks and Bethesda is normal. It's nice. Right. Um, but I was just like, this is not like as a teenage girl reading a book about teenage girls, I was like, I cannot relate to half these stories at all, which I think is um, what makes it a little less than enjoyable for me. I feel like it's realistic that teenagers refer to their very nice and normal hometown as like, being a, an extremely unfortunate thing that they were born into. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's fair. Andrew and I are from a very normal and, and like affluent and, and just nice town. And people just talked about how it's super boring all the time. And and in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, or I'd be like, yeah, it's really boring. I'm, I'm cool and I fit in. And then I'd be thinking like, I don't know, our movie theater is kind of sick, though. Like, it's kind of great. <laughs> I mean, you can get into D.C. from Bethesda, like, on the metro. You know, right. like, it's just mm-hmm. not, it's not that. Why? Well, like, I think if it, Tibby's bored, she could go to the museums. I think she could get an internship. Yeah, I think it speaks to what you're sort of saying, that Tibby's the only, so the, to kind of sum up the plot, these girls have been inseparable because their mothers all gave birth at, like, the same time, basically. They were all in the same Lamaze class. And... So they've all been friends forever. They've seen each other through childhood hardships, which, you know, again, range from like my father left me to my mom wants to have another child uh, like that. It's again, very uneven. And so at 17, they're all going away for the summer, except Tibby. And again, we see Tibby's house. Her home seems quite nice. She has a summer job to fund her documentary. She's not working because she needs to work. She's choosing to to fund her own you know, buying of mini DV tapes for her documentary. But in order to make like that could in a normal world, that could be your normal teenage, like all all my friends left and I'm working a boring job. I think that's all she needs. Yeah. But they go as extra as they can go. (laughs) Yeah. I had that exact thought, which is that being the only one who doesn't get to have an adventure as a teenager would feel like a crushing tragedy. Yeah. And to add a suffocating tragedy on top of that is wild. I mean, I honestly feel like she handles being the one who's essentially left behind like a champ. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, if her plot line was basically like, I'm bored at home, I feel like there's nothing here, but I'm making my movies, I met a boy who plays a game, and I met a 12-year-old who's decently cool, there's more people in the world than my stupid friends, that's a good plot line for me, where she's able to like grow and get some perspective, which is really all her plot is about anyway. Um, without yeah. the like childhood cancer and this like little girl who's like, I always dreamed of growing up and now you have to do it for me, which like kids don't live that way. I think having the I have to befriend a younger kid could have been fitting enough just because she was so opposed to her family expanding and, you know, she's 17 or so and she has a sibling who I want to say was like five, seemed too old to be in a crib. uh, Yeah, I thought that too. And then a, a newborn. So I don't know if her... It's not clear, like, did her parents just have a bunch of kids after the fact? Or is it a different father or whatever? I, her family's a little vague. But, like, she could just be sort of dealing with, oh, I need to learn to be a big sister. Yeah. Without having to watch a girl, like, die before her eyes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a hat on a rack of hats. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's way too much. It's like wearing a pair of shorts over your jeans. If we're, yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) If we're doing that, if we're doing all of this plot for this one character, I think it was decently executed. If we're definitely like doing it, if we have to give the girl who's staying home a cancer friend, I think it goes okay. I mean, there's a lot of moments in that plot that I really like, specifically the moment where, uh, she starts to soften to Bailey after hearing she has leukemia. And Bailey's mm-hmm. like, okay, you've obviously heard that I have leukemia. I have this moment with everyone. And are you just being nicer to me because you know I'm going to die? And I really love that it's not like, no, like I've really bonded with you. It's like, I don't, I don't know. I might just be being nicer because of the leukemia. It felt very real. I, I like that a lot. I like Bailey right up to the point when she's like, it's too late for me. You ha- you know, like, she turns into, like, the worst stereotypical version of, like, a child who can't live to grow up, you know? like And you get those, like, platitudes out of her, and she's like, finish your movie, Tibby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all that matters to me that you finish your movie. And I'm like, this is too... Like, when, like, the early stuff with Tibby and Bailey, I do really like. Where, like, Bailey's like, I just want to help. I think this is cool. She has, like, an interesting perspective on these people that Tibby is interviewing. Mm -hmm. Like, part of what she teaches Tibby is that, like, your hometown's kind of fine and the people here are nice and interesting, actually. They're not just, like, dumb losers. Like, and then the moment she crosses into, like, cancer child's I just am like, this is not as nuanced or interesting or, like, realistic, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I agree it's not realistic I think the first scene where I believe they're stargazing Where she sort of like has a monologue That no 12 year old could ever have that perspective Yeah He's beautiful Like the the writing is beautiful She performs it well And even the, the scene where she's bedridden And Tibby brings her the pants Which we've established in the way she cannot That don't fit her And she's like you need the pants They'll They'll keep you alive Like it's corny and cheesy but if I was not the jaded 28-year-old that I am, I would... Like, it's well-acted. It's They do the best with the material that they can, even if the material is a bit schmaltzy at that point. I hate to be this person, but I did read the book a long time ago. But I don't remember it feeling that schmaltzy and shitty. 
in the book. Like, it feels like Hollywooded up. <laughs> This wouldn't be an episode of Authorized if we didn't have a little bit of, well, in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for all of you. Do you find it confusing as we watch this movie? You know, I mean, you touched on it, Andrea. It's confusing who has the pants and when. But to me, it was kind of confusing. How Who's communicating with who? Yeah, are they only allowed to write to each other when they send the pants forward? Or write to one person because it... Like, I was never sure of who, like, if there were, like, best friendships within the group. Because people just seemed, I I forgot who was writing to who and if it was the same person they had written to before. Because it's so so much drama at the end of the movie when Blake Lively, is it Blake Lively sending the pants to Alexis Bledel? Yeah. With a letter that's like, I lost my virginity, I regret it, I'm very unhappy. And it falls under the bed and she doesn't find it for weeks or something. So, I, again, it doesn't seem that dramatic. Blake Lives is not like, my friends have abandoned me. She's just sort of sad. Um, but it just was never clear with who was writing to who that that didn't feel so seismic because it didn't feel like we got that much of it throughout the film. It does feel like they think we watched an hour of the friendships before they parted. Yeah, the movie right. starts and they're like, well, the dream team's breaking up. And I'm like, the... Sorry, the who? <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of the movie's like, but even apart, they're as strong as together. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's almost like the first movie should have been the Britney Spears film Crossroads, and this is the sequel to that, where we're seeing the them go apart after their adventure together. Yeah, I, I didn't totally buy, like, these girls are best friends. They really get along. They are such totally different teenage girls. Yes. Like, what in the world do Tibby and Bridget talk about? Should we kind of break down, (laughs) Hannah, who, what everyone's sort of gimmick is? I'm not done with Bailey. How dare you guys steer away from (laughs) Bailey? So first off, I said it in the intro. We have not structured this episode well. I just want to say. No, no, we have not. But first off, I I know I said this in the intro, but the documentary is going to suck. Because it's going to be like footage of all of this, you know, these random interactions. And then this video at the end where this girl's like. She's not going to do it in narrative, like, order. I assume she's going to stick that up top or throughout. But imagine it in any orientation. What if the movie starts with the video of Bailey being like, you were always there for me. You had those pants on sometimes, but now, <laughs> leukemia now. And, like, well, if it starts with that and then becomes, like, now we're interviewing people at the store, then the word Bailey comes up in credits roll. I have to assume there's a lot of footage of Bailey, like, hopping into the scene and being like, tell me about your life. And then, like, Tibby's like, get out of the scene. And she's like, sorry, I'm a curious, <laughs> precocious child. <laughs> Is this be, like, a feature film or, like, a two-minute... Yeah. yeah, I bet this is like a 15 to 20 minute short documentary, short subject documentary, as they say. Right. I, I do feel like um, I did kind of want to see the movie where the pants do cure the leukemia, but she has to keep them on. <laughs> and, and like the doctors are like, we, we have to take them off. There's horrendous bacteria buildup all over her legs. And they're like, we can... Try to cut her out, but if she starts to go down, tape it back together. You know, like I wanted oh to see that God. movie. 
I will say this is a a, a bad movie to watch when your um when your 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 partner's childhood dog Bailey died that morning. Oh no! Yes, it was not a good not a good wrinkle. And like we had started the movie before the dog died, and like we were having a day that was like you know sad, and my partner was like. Do you want to finish the movie? It's like her suggestion. I was like, well, I have to. Yeah, let's do it. And then about two minutes into it, I was like, this is like a really bad choice for us, right? Oh, <laughs> She's like, man. yeah, but we'll get, we'll get through it. <laughs> Gosh. Anywho, Andrew, go ahead and apply some sort of structure to this episode. Go for it. <laughs> Who is Ken Quapis? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh, he went, I, he, did you guys know that he actually um, lived in Evanston where I live for I a know. while? I hate you. I hate you. I I wonder if he's ever had deep dish. Tell me a little bit about the tropes of our four precocious lead females. Okay. Well, Bridget is like the hot leader girl. She does sports. She's very pretty and tall. She is a 16 year old Blake Lively. She's like a popular pretty girl, right? Yeah. I think she's the only one who's actually a teenager. Yeah. I couldn't believe that she was actually 16 during the filming of this movie. It's because she's so Crazy. tall. Uh, Very tall. Is this before or after Gossip Girl? It's got to be before. I think this is like her debut. Yeah, this is right in, square in the center of Gilmore Girls. So Alexis Bledel, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say she was just really dialed into Rory and could not shake it. And <laughs> I'm not sure she's capable of other types of acting. No. <laughs> Harsh um, take from Didn't from, she so, try to do something else in Mad Men? I barely remember that. All, all I know is she married Pete Campbell in real life. Yeah. That's crazy. Their foreheads nope. are too big. They can't both have that forehead. They're poor children. Like that's not fair. Well, <laughs> that's how they that's how they mind meld. Um <laughs> What about Alexis Bledel? Let's get into her. <laughs> well, she's she's Greek. A, she, she's an artist. She's shy. She's stuck up and prudish. She needs to loosen up. She's got fake curly hair. I can't believe that they're trying to tell me she's Greek. It just like, I barely believe it. Yeah, and so she just goes to Greece. She goes to Greece to spend time with her her grandparents. (laughs) And we've got Carmen, played by America Ferreira, whose parents split when she was probably eight or nine. Her dad uh, is Bradley Whitford. The most clean-shaven Bradley Whitford you could imagine. I mean, forget <laughs> yeah. about a baby's buttocks. This is like a baby's thigh as a man. <laughs> did, did you not watch The West Wing? This is what he looked like the entire run of The West Wing. Nope, I did not. I did not realize he was young at one point. He was. It was kind of surprising to me to see him with brown hair again. I've gotten very used to him with his like white hair. Right. And it's like his more, um, what am I trying to say? His more muted eyes. Like, I don't mean this in a bad way, but like, as people get older, a bit of the spark goes out of their eyes in a way that's like kind of um, intriguing and attractive. Anyway, he's a bad dad. And Carmen, America Ferreira, goes to spend the summer with her dad, hoping it will be good. It's terrible. He's getting remarried to like a white Southern woman. And Carmen feels like totally cut out of that family because she's not white. (laughs) Yeah, and we should preface with the fact that he reveals that he's getting married and has a, a new, very white, very Southern family in the car ride. Yeah, They're like driving to the airport, and she's like, oh, where are we going? He's like, oh, I've moved out of Charleston. I'm living in the burbs now. Oh, and here's my white family and my, my two Aryan children. 
<laughs> we don't care about you anymore. I never did. I'm a bad dad. It is funny to imagine that what she hoped she would encounter was like her dad in a tiny studio with like <laughs> hot pocket wrappers everywhere. <laughs> and she like finds him like happy having moved on and it's her worst nightmare. I mean, he played that dad the same year in Little Manhattan with Josh Hutcherson as his son. So he has the range to play <laughs> both extremes of fatherhood. But that, yeah, that whole plot line, it's like, it's one, it's daddy issues. It's also like feeling out of place as a non-white person, feeling out of place as someone who's not a size zero. She's got a lot of, as you mentioned, kind of like real world issues that people were experiencing and are still experiencing yeah. And I think the way that she like handles her plot line is very true to teenager behavior and very fair. Like towards the end when she's like, I'm never speaking to my dad again. I was like, yes, sister, cut him out of your life. Yeah. Remove the toxic element, you know, and that she is convinced to like allow him back into her heart is nice and probably healing. But like at what cost? He's going to continue to be the worst dad in the world. Yeah. What's unrealistic, though, is the scene in which she's, she's, I mean, they, they've invited her to be a bridesmaid in this wedding. Mm-hmm. And the people at this dress shop oh, they're are so, so mean that a woman does not fit into a dress. And well, it's first just... of all, it's like her dad guessed her size, which what dad has ever just been able to size up a woman on side? And alone? why didn't the new mom, the fiance woman, be like, Okay, when you say that, what do you mean? Like, is she yeah. curvy? Is she a thin? Like, like literally use some descriptors. Oh, yeah. he. They were, like, sizing her up for this dress before she even came to South Carolina. Yeah. It seems. But, like, Bradley Whitford knows what his daughter looks like, right? Like, in, like the dress that she ends up putting on is clearly cut for a girl who is shaped like the sister to be who is like a very slim sort of like flat boxy girl. Yeah. And it's like, in what world? Like if you said, like if the fiance was like, okay, does your daughter look like my daughter? And he'd be like, no, like I don't (laughs) understand how this mistake was made so terribly. It just seems really cruel. That scene is so hurtful. But Hannah is right that like the, he definitely just, when asked what her size was, said daughter sized. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, you can tell, by the way, that Ken Quapis is um, from Evanston because he he has them go to the, the, the store from Mean Girls where they only have up to whatever, a size three or whatever. The 135. The 135. Yeah, literally like, I don't know if you have enough fabric to make a dress for that ass. <laughs> It's the meanest thing. Like, no customer service representative would say that in front of the girl. And not even, like, whispered and she overhears it. They're just shouting it. Yeah, it's awful. (laughs) It's so nasty. Like, I'm totally on Carmen's side 100% the entire time she is treated horrendously by those people. The entire time she's there. Except the brother's fine. Yeah, I honestly thought maybe they were going to kiss. And then I'd be like, whoa, weird. But then, no, he's just like a weird, silent boy. Her, like, potential stepbrother is like an all-star athlete who they make a big thing out of it that he just, like, visits his actual dad who's an alcoholic in a treatment center once a month. I don't know if that's why he doesn't talk. 
they only set that up so that she can throw it in her dad's face at the end yeah. and say, your stepson goes to visit his alcoholic father once a month. Why do you only come see me, your daughter, twice a year? I, it, yeah. it, honestly, I think that's the only reason it's set up. Yeah. I really thought they were going to have a scene where she'd be like, what's your deal? And he'd be like, I don't fit into this family. I don't feel comfortable here. Like, I miss my dad. I don't like this situation. And she'd be like, oh, same. We have something in common. I guess I'm not totally alone down here. But no, that's not what happens. Speaking of step-siblings kissing, um, <laughs> don't worry. Watch Clueless recently? <laughs> no, I was going to say, it is weird because, uh, uh, you know, I've been going to a lot of weddings recently and, and uh I was at one and, and the other side of the family, I was talking to them and doing kind of a who's who, how are you guys all related? And at one point they did go, oh, this is kind of confusing because if you go back a couple generations, two brothers did marry two sisters. Cute. And so th- that person you just asked about is a relation of mine on one side, but also another relation on another. And it's just weird because cute, yes. When you think of it from a courtship angle, Still feels weird, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as long as you're... Like, I think two brothers and two sisters, and these two are not... They're not related to each other in any way, shape, or form. It is cute. Then, as long as your kids don't date, it's chill. Right. But, you know, you could have just like a Godfather 3 situation on your hands. Sometimes cousins be dating. Oh, sometimes cousins do be dating. (laughs) Sorry. Are you guys watching Champagne Ill? No, I don't know what that is. It's on Hulu now. It's like Sam Richardson and Adam Pally. It's very, very funny. But that show has a hilarious cousins do be dating plot line. Okay, I'll check it out. I love both of those people. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. Better than Arrested Development? Uh, It's different. It's a different cousins do be dating kind of plot. I was going to say earlier that this movie in some ways feels like Arrested Development season four in (laughs) how... They desperately want all of the characters to have significance to one another, but it feels like they couldn't get them in the same location. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going, and of course you have this little adventure on the beach with this boy, and she'll have a phone call about it to another character. By the time that Carmen goes home and has scenes with Tibby, I was like, ah, this is what the movie's been missing. Right. Right. It's where the girls talk to each other. But I think the the sequel is also just them traveling. I mean, they had to spend that budget. I guess so. They got to get those pants out of Chicago. I mean, Beth- Bethesda, sorry. Ken Quapis is from Chicago, but the movie Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. There. I got um, it. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. But... Sounds like I need to do more prep on the author next time, because it feels like <laughs> no. we didn't get no. all the He's info that the we author. needed. Oh, Your yeah, there's Efron's no book. sister wrote this movie, and we're not even bringing her up. <laughs> So speaking, it feels like we're we're doing kind of our Carmen segment right now. So speaking of that, what do you, f- how do you feel about the ending of that plot line, where they're at the wedding and Carmen's in the audience and her dad's been awful to her the whole movie, and then her dad says, "You know what, honey, pause the ceremony. <laughs> I have another family member I need up here." And then Carmen's obviously embarrassed and it's like, "I don't have a dress. Don't call me up or whatever." And he's like, "No." do for real come and she stands up and it's supposed to be very touching although i did find her standing up there without a dress to just sort of like highlight that she was the outlier in kind of a nasty way 
Yeah. And I thought it was insufficient redemption for a very villainous character. Yeah. To have him at the last moment go, today, though, I'm nice. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like after the ceremony itself, the four girls just ignore him for the rest of the time they're there. So... <laughs> Yeah, they just go up on their own. Like, I, yeah, I, I do think it's unsatisfying. I think it's shitty that her friends are like, you've got to make up with your dad. What's a girl without her dad? I'm like, a perfectly healthy young woman. You know, like, I don't love that they force her back into a relationship with her dad. I don't think it's nice that her dad pulls her up. I do think when he hugs her real good, it is emotionally effective. Bradley Whitford, good actor. Yeah, he he's bringing a lot to that that the script doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, like, the fiance is like, come up here, sweetie. And I'm like, this bitch hates her. Like, this is so disingenuous. But the thing is, none of the parental relationships are really addressed well in the movie. Tibby clearly has some sort of family issue with her mother who keeps lumping on watching her very young siblings onto her. And they never come to any blows. Alexis Bledel's parents do not appear in the film. Nope. Uh, but her grandparents do, and her grand- a sweet, cute little grandpa man, they get to at least have... They're the closest we have to actually having, like, two people, like, really have it out. Because when Carmen calls her father earlier, she gives it to him, and then just hangs up the phone, and that should be it. I think it, it is almost negated by her going to the wedding. The victory yeah. is really just saying, like my mother before me, I have realized my dad is not great. And I just need to move on with that. The script is handing too much power back to the Bradley Whitford character. Yeah. By it, the ending, as you're saying, should be him being kind of tongue-lashed. And instead, we go a step further and we go, you know what? He learned a lot. And it's like, too little, too late, motherfucker. Like He doesn't even go to get her. Like He doesn't no. ask her to come to the wedding. He doesn't do anything to have earned any kind of redemption. He literally lets her run away from home, doesn't look for her, doesn't follow her, doesn't check in on her, doesn't do fucking jack shit. Even when she throws a rock through their window. He doesn't even, like, come out of the house to be like, let me talk to her. Nothing. I was just going to outline that. So in in the case that any listener has not watched this movie, I mean, (laughs) good prioritization of your time. I'll, I'll say first off, like, you're an adult person and you're doing great. Um, but basically what happens with the Carmen plot coming to a boil is that after the dress scene where she's humiliated at the dress store, she runs off and she finally comes back to her dad's place, assuming that they're like looking for her or whatever. Cause she ran away, Reasonable. but they're just sitting in their fucking house, having a nice dinner without her just being hey, their yes. little pretty family and she throws a rock at the window which doesn't go through which for me that would bum me out if i threw the rock and it didn't go through you know but it does it crack it, that's why she runs away again and she's it does yeah out. she's too ashamed um it does crack the window she runs off but yes crazy chain of events she throws a rock at their window then calls her dad and yells at him a bunch and he in that call is not vocally or verbally contrite at all he just takes it then she shows up at the wedding, and he's like, come on up. You're my daughter. I love you so much. It actually would have been inspired. It would have been inspired if Bradley Whitford gave a performance where he felt bullied into doing that. <laughs> if, he had, if he had been up there, and yeah. he was like, he was like, uh, yeah, my daughter, um... 
Please come up. No, you're just like my other children. And I love you equally. I live in the deep south now, and I'm marrying a very conservative white woman, and I <laughs> love my Hispanic daughter. <laughs> yeah, instead, they're like, he really, really feels bad, and he's really changed, yeah. and I just don't fucking buy it. Yeah, I don't. I think if you were telling this story today as opposed to in 2004 or whatever, mm-hmm. it would be different. Like, I don't think that, like, sure. going back to your emotionally abusive dad is what we would consider a success for that character or a win, you know? And I think we're all having this response because like we as a culture have like been like, no, cut that guy out of your life. He clearly is not going to help you grow as a person. Like he has nothing to offer you, not even love. I think you could do a plot where you have him explain himself. And I'm not saying that he comes out looking good, but You have to do something if you want to redeem him. You have to have a scene where he goes, you know what? Like, I was not ready to have a family when I got your mother pregnant. And I should have just, you know, stepped up and been a father to you. But I wasn't. And I, I freaked out and I ran away. And the harsh reality is that I am ready now. And... You know, I'm, yeah. he, he could have a scene like that. But instead, she's like, you're a bad dad. You're a bad dad. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But at the end, he's like, but am I a good dad, though? Maybe I'm a good dad, though? There's <laughs> <laughs> a version of this where you're like, yes, go make up with your dad. A healthy relationship there is important. You can do it. Not in the way it's presented in this movie. And there are versions of what you're describing, Andrew, where, like, you know, the dad, well, some, oh, I think it's. I think it is the movie Crossroads, actually, <laughs> in which Britney Spears' mother ran away or something and, like, has a family now. There are movies where it's, like, the person's, like, I wasn't ready to have a kid then. I'm glad to have a family now. And it's kind of weird to me that you exist because I abandoned you. Uh, yeah. So it's it's been done. Yeah, this is just a rough one. And I really, like... I, I wonder if in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 2, colon, electric pants boogaloo, she, like, has to hang out with her dad again and if their relationship is good now. I think it's actually, there's not a lot of returning okay. uh, supporting cast member. Let me confirm. I have a confession to make, which is that I do not know what the reference electric boogaloo is from. Oh, it's Breaking 2. There's a film called Breaking, which is about breakdancing. Okay. Uh, and they made a sequel called Breaking Two: Electric Boogaloo. It's just which a was sequel a canon joke. I film. actually didn't know that either. Yeah, it was a canon film, and so when they made the documentary about canon films and sort of the crazy run they had in the '80s, I think they called it Electric Boogaloo. But it's always sort of the joke. It's a funny title. <laughs> I've always understood the joke and understood like what people mean by it—that like they're just doing a goofy sequel. But I didn't know just where it had come from. Canon movies are awesome, though. I love them so much. Yeah. I think my first exposure to Electric Boogaloo, and I just want to say this, and then I do want to hear about Traveling Pants 2, was actually like uh, like a Pikachu comic. Like, look out, Pikachu 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> oh, sure. So I'm looking oh, at the sure. <laughs> on Wikipedia here. And it appears the only returning cast members other than our primary four are Costas, our Greek hottie, Brian McBrien, our video game king, and 
the father of Bridget, who I am learning this just by reading this, was played by Blake Lively's actually a father. I saw that on Ernie IMDb Lively. Trivia. Isn't that funny? Uh, some of our new supporting characters are, include Jesse Williams, Lucy Hale, Kyle McLaughlin, Blythe Danner. <laughs> oh, electric and, uh, Pikachu Boogaloo. I found Hannah it. is showing us the electric Pikachu Boogaloo joke that introduced her to the format of the meme and i gotta yeah. say uh looking here at the soundtrack for the sequel it seems to slap just as hard as the first one can't wait can't <laughs> wait to cover traveling pants 2 yes there is some michelle branch on the soundtrack oh boy i i think just to close the carmen thoughts out i i think what's really interesting about the carmen plot is that it's sort of a middle ground between the complete directionless airlessness of the what's her name lena plot and the really way too intense tibby plot the leukemia stuff because it has the trappings of we're talking about important things it has like a parent abandoning someone and then sort of re confronting them about it and and trying to get trying to get some closure but it just handles it like a fucking train wreck mm-hmm. um it the 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 script bites off, I feel like, more than it can chew with the Carmen plot because it actually is a really engaging conflict, but has no idea how to wrap that conflict up at all. Whereas, and I, I hope we can talk about Lena next. Lena's like sure. the exact opposite, where it feels like they didn't even know how to create a conflict. There's nothing yeah. going on in that plot. For no reason at all, her grandparents don't like her boyfriend's grandparents. And they say, right. you can never see that boy again. Right. But she does, and it's yeah. fine. It's just Romeo and Juliet without stakes. And why? To what point? None of the other girls have a literary combination, you know? If they did, that would be cool. So, like, why does she have to have a Romeo and Juliet plot? Like, why can't she just date a Greek fisherman? I did make that joke to my partner. I was like, okay, this one's Romeo and Juliet, so which one's going to be Macbeth? (laughs) (laughs) They kind of set her up as being so chaste and pure. And you think the conflict's almost going to come more from, like, oh, her family's very repressed and she's having this sort of, like, hot and heavy relationship that's unlike her and unlike the expectation her family has set. So her grandparents are going to be, like, upset about it. But it's not that. It's just that there was some argument over fish some indeterminate amount of time ago. And even though this boy has suffered immense tragedy and his parents are dead and he's taken over some fishing business, the grandpa still finds uh, it in himself to just spit in the boy's face because he went dancing with Alexis Bledel. And Costa is his name, right? Costa? Yeah. Costa? He's very nice. He's very respectful. He's very, like, he seems like a guy you could bring home to your family. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's He's not, like, a bad boy at all. Saving her from drowning. Yeah. She puts on the pants, immediately falls into the water. The pants get caught on some sort of underwater. Something. Something or other. She's incapable of saving herself. She's not very buoyant. She's just, <laughs> just like, I think it's about the way Alexis Bedell's like angular body works and she's like in the water and she's like, ah, oh no, oh no. And it's like, she, uh, she can't figure out how to like unhook her fucking pants. And I'm like, wouldn't be that hard. 
Yeah, though she's in the warm waters of Greece, she's got the, you know, complexion of a body that was outside of the Titanic for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've never been to Greece, but yeah, the, the family feud, um, as in a feud of families, not bad answer or whatever. Um, <laughs> good answer, good answer. Good answer. Oh, good answer. I don't know why I associated that with that being a wrong answer. That's the sound for good answer. Anyway. Whatever. We'll drop it and then we'll get sued. I mean, they say um, good answer and then it's not usually a good answer. If it's bad answer, though, they don't say bad answer. It's just like a... I, if I was on it with my family, I'd be saying that. <laughs> when I was on the debate team in college, I was told that, you know, like if somebody makes a point that you agree with, people will uh, sort of bang on their desks and say, here, here. And I was told... That you could yell shame if you disagreed with something. But the first time I did it, I got so many glares. But no one yelled shame back at you? No, because I was in the audience. But, like, <laughs> audience, par- <laughs> audience participation is, like, encouraged with the hear, hear. Like, and then people were like, yeah, and if they say something really heinous, you can say shame. And, you know... I don't know. They I said something. Somebody, it sounds like I, maybe somebody tricked you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> somebody totally. did you a dirty. Um, I was not long for the debate team anyway. I, in one of my first um, practice debates, uh, said that we shouldn't use any nuclear power because it would cause nuclear bombs, and everyone laughed me out of the state. So, Well, you were right, and you can know that in your heart. I was right, even though those are completely different things. Yep, but, you know, the concept <laughs> of nuclear power, one thing leads to another, the spiral begins, and then where do we stop? Absolutely. absolutely. Anyway, let's cut that out. Let's cut it out and continue forward. Can we all agree <laughs> that Lena is also a bad artist? Her art is bad? I mean, it's, it's, it's not interesting. It's not technically proficient either why didn't they get somebody else to do the art i read on imdb trivia that alexis bodell like learned how to draw and learned <laughs> how to ride a vespa and like learned how to swim and shit well the vespa like, had to learn how to swim <laughs> that may be an exaggeration don't quote me on that i mean i but thought I did... james cameron did these drawings i don't know about you <laughs> i think i mean Almost shocking when, like, her grandmother is like, look at these drawings of this boy. We've all seen the boy with his shirt off now. And I was like, yeah, He works mostly good. with his shirt off. Like, the, the drawings don't really look like him. They could be any guy on the island. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're not good or sexy. They don't have, like, sex appeal coming off of them. So I wouldn't be worried to find those in my granddaughter's sketchbook. I felt like there was... Um a lot of unintentional dramatic tension in the Lena plot because I was just assuming I was watching a better movie. And (laughs) when they said, oh, there was some business disagreement, that's why our families don't like each other. Um, I I thought for sure that there was going to be a reveal later about, hey, there's actually a really legitimate reason that you should not date this man. And we're actually looking out for your best interests. But so I kind of had this feeling of dread through most of the movie, you know, that at some point they'd be like, no, like they eat children, like don't date him. (laughs) And we never even get to meet his family. We never get to see his grandparents because it'd also be dramatically interesting if you had a scene where she goes to their house and they're like, here's what really happened. Because we only hear that they're about the family conflict from Costas who wants to date Alexis Bledel, so is going to do whatever he can to downplay 
why does he like her so much? I mean, she's her eyes are very blue. <laughs> I just don't get it. She's just such a boring character. And he's like, uh, I'm in love with you immediately. I'm interesting. I go to school. My parents are dead. I have a job. And she's like, I have nothing. And he's like, beautiful, perfect, bellissima. <laughs> the p- I just can't wrap my head around it. The parents are dead thing leads to like maybe the worst scene in the movie. <laughs> Where he tells her that his parents, you know, died and it's all sad. And she has that VO monologue about how sad it is that his parents died. And what is it that she says? She's like, I, or no, he who's gone through so much strife, he's looking for love. And why is it that I, who have had it so good, I'm so closed off to love? And I was like, yeah, why are you so closed off to love? You're having like the best summer of your life in Greece and you don't want to kiss a boy? Chill out, girl. Right. It, like, it felt like they left out a part of the movie where she was raised like very, very religious. Like, <laughs> don't show a boy your leg religious. <laughs> yeah, or like just broke up with a bad boyfriend, like a bad high school boyfriend or something. And it's like, I'm not ready to date someone new even though you've met the perfect guy. Like there's something missing from her plot line. It is sort of interesting that none of them have a pre-existing relationship. Yeah. That, like, there's a lot of drama to be mined. Yeah, Bridget. Wait, I I don't know that I'm following you. What do you mean, pre-existing relationship? Like, none of them, there's no drama in the story of, like, I'm going away to Greece, but I'm in love with Kenny back home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're all doing it right. They're all going on their adventure <laughs> unmoored. Because we've all seen the other perspective. Like, especially when you started college and every single friend of yours went through a breakup. Yeah. 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 So speaking of Bridget, that's really the storyline we haven't unpacked Wait, at all. I feel you like... I have more to say about Lena? I must. I mean, I must, <laughs> right? I um, Maybe I don't. And maybe, maybe I don't. And maybe we'll just cut this out. But I'm just thinking, like, that's such I mean, an insane plot. I think it's really crazy that Lena's or yeah, Lena's storyline ends with her being like, I'm in love with this guy and he's in love with me and we're going to make it work. Like she's in high school. He's in college at the University of Athens in fucking Greece. Mm-hmm. Like how in what world are they going to make that work? And what do you mean you're in love? You've spent maybe six weeks together. Right. I, I mean, if, 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 there's like this, the character's beliefs and then, I don't know what term I'm looking for, but like the belief that the movie seems to hold. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes sense for the character to believe she's in love and that this is the love of her life and that it will last and that long distance they will make it work. I think that actually makes sense. The fact that the movie kind of goes all in on how romantic is this and they really will make it work. And I, I mean, do you agree with me on that? It feels like tonally they're really selling it as true love. This is the problem for me, is that the movie feels like saying, like, she did it. She broke out of her shell, and she fell in love, and she's going to, like, bone that guy for the rest of her life. And he's into it. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. I cannot reconcile this. They they even have a similar scene in her monologue to her grandfather where she's saying, like, let me date this boy. She makes some reference, like, years ago, you had to fight for grandma. And I'm like, was that ever established that, like, did he have his own Shakespearean whirlwind romance that was established off screen in the pages of the book? It's it's not 
world changing. She's just like, it, it, it could have been so much simpler if it's just like, I'm 16. I've never kissed a boy. I would love to kiss a boy. Yeah. And then she kisses a boy who's very sweet and I, then goes yeah. home. I totally yeah. agree with you. I think the fix to this plot is to remove all conflict and to basically say that from like, all the plots or no, just, just from this plot. one. I think that if you're contrasting the experiences of these four women on vacation or whatever, one of them's back home on their adventures, I think it makes sense to have one that just goes nicely, but you know, the author or the screenwriter or whoever decided to do a Romeo and Juliet thing was like, no, there has to be conflict. That's like what, that's what stories are, and that's what gives them stakes, and I, I just don't believe it. I think you could have had a one character has a really nice summer, and wow, isn't that a huge contrast from Tibby's trauma, <laughs> just outright <laughs> trauma, summer-long trauma. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's... I agree. I, I think that's basically the fix, is is make it just a, a nice romance with no second genre added on. Like, if, if the only, like, quote-unquote conflict in Lena's story was that she was like, ooh, I've never kissed a boy. This is kind of a lot for me. That's really compelling. That's enough for me. Like, I'm invested in that. Definitely. I, I mean, just put me back in the headspace of, like, being a teenager and, like, being so excited about stuff like that that I'm worried about it. Does this boy like me? Does he not like me? Will, like, will kissing a person, like, fundamentally change who I am? That's like a right. thing that, you know, you, I used to just yeah. think about. Right. I just worry if we ask the author to uh, amend this storyline, she would just go like full Amanda Knox and she's like, make it even darker. <laughs> like, oh, you wanted you wanted more to this story. OK, I think because there's an attempt at drama, but it is so like not on the level of the other three stories. It just makes Lena seem like a vapid dumbbell. Yeah. Like for her to be like, oh no, I can't kiss a boy. And meanwhile, your friend is like, a girl I know is dying. My dad doesn't like me. <laughs> I'm going through a literal crisis of personality in Mexico. Like, it's yeah. just and not when, equivalent. And when she's played by the, you know, human personification of white woman's Instagram, Alexis Bledel, <laughs> it's very hard to like believe her because one she doesn't have the acting range of the other performers but everything she does is just like oh it's so hard to be so pretty and white and porcelain and i do think a different actress would help this thing like someone who was less like a weird someone who porcelain doll someone who was greek someone who has some sort of like life within her that feels like it's it's just like aching to get out, but it hasn't had a chance yet. Like Alexis Bledel yeah. is just so like icy and stiff that when she's like, I like the boy and I'm going to dance with him. I was like, he's going to laugh at you because your bones don't move for dancing. Like he's going <laughs> to look at you dance and be like, oh, never mind. <laughs> like, it really cheapens her character that she treats her predicament like such a predicament and that she, she, Treats it with so much gravity that she's doing VO monologues about it. <laughs> because if if it were a salty sweet thing, this storyline's really dark. This storyline's really uplifting. That would be one thing. But for to have a dark storyline and an uplifting one, and in the uplifting one, the character's going, My storyline is so difficult. It makes <laughs> her seem vapid and kind of dumb. I feel like as we think about it more or as we talk about it more, rather. I can't speak to what you're thinking. <laughs> as we talk about it more, I feel like every plotline except Tibby 
does a forced emotional ending where they're going. So we were talking about it with Carmen where they set up certain elements. And then at the end, they're like, and of course, this is how you should be feeling. And in the Carmen uh, case, it's saying, and the dad redeemed himself. Well, I don't buy it in the, in the Lena case, it's saying, and Lena and this Greek boy, they were madly in love, and it's true love. And I'm saying, I don't know. It seems fun, but I'm, I don't buy it. And um, I feel the same way, just to transition, about the Blake Lively character. I think she has kind of an interesting setup, kind of an interesting plot. And then the emotional beat that the movie asked me to reach at the end of her plot rings completely false. And which part of that is it? Well, let's, I mean, let's let's talk through, through it a little bit, and I'll do my big reveal opinion at the end. So, okay. okay, so Blake Lively playing Bridget is a soccer star. She's sort of, you know, has a lot of the leader energy of the group. She goes away to Baja, California to super soccer camp and instantly is like sees one of the soccer coaches and is like, well, I want to smash that boy. Uh, and yeah. he's a college student. And is off limits, as the other girls say, but also, yeah, not even off limits in the You can't kiss a counselor. It's like not allowed. This is the second bonus episode in a row that has adults hypothesizing whether they want to kiss children. And I've found, and I just to just to bring up a a really moving insight about life that I've seen, is that as I've gotten older that rule has recurred. Don't kiss the counselors. Yeah. Uh, someone want to take this over? <laughs> I, I mean, okay. So Bridget is like, I want to smash that boy whose name is anybody know? Let's call I him say, uh, Richard. I want to say Mikey. Eric. I want to say his name is Eric. He def- is Mike. Yeah. He definitely has a, a bit of a broy name. Yeah. He's a, he's a total bro. He's a blonde boy. He's not uncute. He does read as his name is Eric. I was right. Hell yeah. Um, there Hannah, is. Hannah going strong as person who remembers names, bringing back the Jane Austen energy. <laughs> I'm proud oh, of myself. Bradley Whitford's name is Al in this movie. Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she's like, I want to smash this boy. Her friends say, no, you're not allowed. Don't do it. He friends says. Is a strong word. They are. The, the girls at colleagues. her camp. Yeah. Her fellow bunkmates are like, ew, gross. Don't do it. You're not allowed. You're here to play soccer. Cool it. He, the boy, is like, no, thank you. That's not appropriate. I do not want to smash you. She continues to pursue him. And honestly, is having a, she is having a hard time in her personal life and clearly needs some validation and has decided that this boy will give it to her and is reading into interactions. Like, he's kind of flirting with her, sure. Like, obviously, there's an attraction between them. But he's made it pretty clear, like, that's not appropriate. We're not going to do this. And she's like, you want it, and you want it bad. (laughs) She does multiple occurrences of inappropriate behavior towards him that he shuts down politely. Then she gets the pants, puts them on. Her ass looks so fine that he can no longer resist, and they (laughs) go on the beach. (laughs) They have sex. She then is like, I thought that would solve my problem. It didn't. I feel worse. Crazy. I got to go home now. (laughs) Then he shows up at her home and is like, my bad. I should never have allowed that to happen, which is true. I'm sorry that it made you feel that way. I think you're a great girl. And someday when you're an adult, let's touch base again. And not even just like when you're 18. He's like, hey, when you're like 20. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, when you've 
gone through one divorce. Hit me up. (laughs) (laughs) I really wish that this had been a story about this man holding to his boundaries and like and and demanding that his lines in the sand be respected. It was so disappointing that he was like, "Look, I'm a counselor. That's not cool." And then he kept saying that and then eventually he was like, "I do like women though." So, yeah, it doesn't feel like they have like a forbidden romance where they really like each other. She just thinks he's hot. He thinks she's hot, and eventually they bone on the beach. It's not like a romantic situation, really. No. Now, Hannah, you read the the book upon which this was based, which is not the reason we're doing the episode. Um, right. When I was watching this with my my girlfriend, she, I want to say, insinuated, but it was it was super text. She said it out loud that uh-huh. that it's supposed to be that she feels that she was assaulted by him. Do you agree with that? I don't remember that? that. I don't remember that. No. I mean, I think. I, I read this book when I was like 13. So I yeah. just want to preface by saying that I don't remember it super duper duper well. Um, and as a 13 year old, I did not get the sense that she felt assaulted. But I do relate to the feeling of being like, mm, I don't feel good about that encounter I just had. Right. You know? I'm, I mean, I wonder, and I haven't read the book, but I wonder if yeah. it's supposed to be an instance of like, consenting to something but not necessarily consenting to what happened or if it's a story about just purely i thought i wanted it but i didn't want it because if it is in any way about violation it makes the final scene between them horrific (laughs) yeah way worse i mean and and i i'll go so far as to say that his part in all of this is more horrific than it seems anyway I mean, mm-hmm. I understand that their age gap is not massive, but for him to be a counselor at that camp and not be able to hold firm to that boundary, which surely is something they, like, drill into you as a counselor. Yeah, I think he would get fired easily. The fact that he's willing to sort of, you know, uh, compromise that value is actually sort of chilling given the position he's in, is my only point. And I feel like yeah. it's played for, well, you know, like, people be attracted to each other. And it's like, yeah, I guess, but the, at, at least have them connect for the first time after the camp or something. Well, it's also interesting because we, she has, they have sex. She writes a letter to Lena saying, like, it wasn't what I thought it would be. I wish I could talk to my mom. But I don't think we ever see her at camp again. It's definitely the so, end of the summer. So it's an interesting thing where it's like, the movie doesn't give us the context of like he's still trying to pursue her at camp. She's ignoring him. Like we don't understand like what their dynamic is after that right away, mm-hmm. or like he ghosts her or something. So it does leave it a little more unclear as to what the intent was with like what what they're trying to express as her perspective in that. It moment. is just kind of an icky plot line. Like I do think it is based in real world teenage girl experiences. You think you want to sleep with an older guy? Turns out you really don't. Um, but it is just icky. And I feel like poor Bridget is like really going through it. And all of her camp compatriots are like, you're a slut. Like, I mean, we don't know what's going on with you, but you're just like whoring it up and we hate it. Yeah. Um, which is also hard on her. Like, I yeah. really, 
I do feel her friends for her. just want to play soccer. Yeah, and honestly, like Bridget is so good at soccer that they probably don't like her for that reason as well. There's a series yeah. of reasons why the other soccer girls are like, we don't like you or care about you. I really, I this is recontextualizing everything. I really thought that there was an assault element. I thought that that's why they were going to her aid and everything, but it was just to provide like emotional support, I guess. I think it's because it's so. ultimately that she's probably struggling with some sort of I mean, this movie could have been fixed. Everything this movie could have been fixed if everyone just went to therapy. She's she's worried that because, you know, her mom struggled with depression and ultimately took her own life, that, like, she feels some sort of, like, am I going to end up like that? If I pretend to be happy, if I do all the things that I think are going to make me happy, will I be happy? And she finds that she does feel empty and in that moment has no female voice at the camp or in her life to talk to him. And they've made it, they make it clear throughout the movie that like her dad, like writes her a letter just being like, hope all is well at camp. Yeah. Her dad doesn't know what to do with her. Yeah. All the other girls are getting like letters from their mom and like tampons and things being like, Oh, mom knows me so well. She knows I need those tampons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's you like, just can't they, get they the really pearls in Baja. That, like you just can't. Yeah, she needs, she needs a mom. Or at least some sort of maternal figure to help her through the difficult woes of teenage years. Yeah. And then what it turns out she needs is her group of friends. Like, she can't have her mom. She can have people who love her and will listen to her and will be there for her. Her girlfriends. Which is nice. Everybody realizes they need their girlfriends. Except Alexis Bledel, I think, just needs Greek boy. Yeah, she needed to get laid so she could loosen the fuck up. (laughs) I appreciate a light touch in a movie, but <laughs> that's that was too light with the with the uh, Blake Lively plot. Like if if it's supposed to be about you know uh, grieving and depression and sense of self, I feel like it wasn't present enough to make a point. In my opinion, I mean, I think yeah. it feels like more of a plot twist. I think it's present once they reveal it. Yeah, it's in like the the back third of her story where the first two thirds are just like having fun flirting with a boy. Yeah. But you do feel like you are in the perspective of a different person when you're watching her in those scenes, like another person in the scene, because you're only seeing her outward actions. Mm -hmm. So when we finally get her interiority, you're like, Oh, this is unexpected, which is how it happens in real life. People feign or put on a facade and then that facade, you know, breaks down at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it felt more authentic than some of the other stuff, which is a little more, you know, spelled out in the movie. I agree. Now that's a good point, and it makes me respect Blake Lively's performance, uh, maybe more than I, or I just think about it more than I was, because Hannah, like you said, she's really given very little to do for about half the movie, where she's just kind of <laughs> needs to be flirtatious and throwing herself at this guy. But yeah, I, I do feel that her performance, you can read sadness into it. You know, that there is a, a desperation to it. And that's that's got to be a hard position to be in. Where you're like, okay, eventually in this movie, I get to reveal that I have a whole deal going on. But yeah. mm-hmm. for a good portion of it, I don't. And uh, I, I think that she succeeds there where Alexis Bledel fails. Yeah. Blake Lively is really doing a good job. Yeah, whatever whatever Lena is supposed to be feeling or going through, uh, it's not reading. And 
I'd be interested to know uh, whether they added in that voiceover scene for Lena because they felt like it like wasn't cohesive because they don't do that for for Blake Lively as far as I can recall. I guess they must because she writes a letter. But she gets it when she writes the letter. We'll have to ask uh, Ken Quapis when we have him on for our <laughs> <laughs> I don't know episode yeah. on snow puppies. It does feel like, because the movie opens with voiceover from Carmen. Then we get, like, one little bit of voiceover from Lena. But the other girls don't have, like, major voice. Like, their their little story boxes are not outlined with voiceover in Mm -hmm. the way that, like, would feel obvious to me. Right. You would be like, okay, well, this is, the voiceover would be, like, the letter you write about your adventure while you have the pants. And then you send it on. And then we move through the girls. And the movie just is like, nope, we don't care enough. We don't care to do that. The lack of structure really pissed me off. Really pissed me off. Yeah. Just As uh, I recall from the book, I do think the book is structured. It follows the pants. You go from girl to girl with the pants. Yeah. Which just seems like a big duh. How, how long are they away and how long does each person have the pants? It's like six weeks. I think each of them has it for a week over an eight-week summer. So they each end up with it right. for two weeks throughout the summer. It just... I needed more pants. Uh, and I needed the pants to factor in more because it yeah. really feels like there wasn't enough happening with the the characters when they had the pants yeah. for it to be like, I need the pants back. There are so few full-body shots of these girls wearing the titular pants. Like... They should be constantly fucking showing off these blue jeans and then never be wearing a different pair of blue jeans. (laughs) Yes. And you just don't get that clarity. Yeah, I wish it almost wasn't blue jeans in a sense because blue jeans are so, you know, commonplace that you you want the pants to pop a little more on camera. And, like, I think to the scenes in Greece, like, the thing that pops the most in Greece is the one scene where Alexis Bledel wears green. Yeah, because of every other time she's wearing all white or she's wearing white with blue jeans, and so it's just like you need more visual. And I wish maybe they had more, you know, flair on them and maybe like more of a pattern because they buy them at a thrift store, I believe. The pants need to be visually recognizable the moment they are on screen. Like yeah. you should be able to look at that girl and be like, "Those are the pants," and there's yeah. none of that. Like, I would love to just talk about the pants. I'm so mad about the treatment of the pants, to be honest. I feel like the structurally, the biggest issue yes. is that when they introduce the concept of the pants and that they're going to mail them to each other with a letter, we then don't see them for like 25 minutes. And then the back half of the movie is like, remember the pants? They're still doing the pants. But like, when I crucially need to be following the main character, the pants... They're nowhere to be found. Um, is this also a good time for me to reveal that I have never in my life worn jeans? That's crazy. You should try on a pair of blue jeans. We should all try on the same pair of blue jeans. It feels like it would just be not a look for me. I don't know. I'm like very much a, you know. a, a khakis guy. I, I think back on our childhood, and I do remember you wearing a lot of shorts and tan pants. I do feel like it took me a long time to come around on the iconic blue jean. But now I have multiple pairs in my life and I'm very happy with them. What's the appeal? I don't get it. They're neutral. They're comfortable. They're, you know, they're just like a good old pair of pants. Mm-hmm. And they fit everybody the same way. 
Yeah. One time I should I should say that I have lied. One time I did put a pair of jeans on to be one of those scarecrows that seems to be a scarecrow but is a person on Halloween. Well, there you go. If they're comfortable enough for a scarecrow, they're comfortable enough for a man. Felt like I was wearing an alien's skin. <laughs> you never performed in a play where you had to wear jeans? No, no. I was like typecast as a suit wearing guy. You you remember this from <laughs> high school? I was the butler and uh and then there were none and I was an executive and how to succeed in business. People just looked at me and they were like loose. Yeah, like that the, boy in a suit. Yeah, people looked at me and they were like, get those shoulders in something that shows shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Jeans don't showcase shoulders. If I may discuss the titular traveling pants slightly more. Yes. Um the scene where they buy the pants and they all try on the pants. And they're all like, wow, these fit us all amazingly. Again, no full body shots of how good the jeans fit. And you never, they fit all the girls exactly the same, which is just not possible. Well, they're magical. Very inferior. Well, like, there's only so far a pair of jeans can stretch. These girls are tall. These girls are not tall. Like, the magic of the pants is is yes, it fits them all, but it doesn't fit them all as like the tightest pair of jeans that make you look hot. Like, as I recall from the book, like the jeans fit Tibby as like big baggy jeans and she likes them that way. And they fit like Bridget as like tight, sexy jeans and she likes that. And they fit Carmen as like a shorter cropped jean or whatever. Like, but they all fit them slightly differently that fits their personality. And the magic is that like, they it, it all looks good. Not that it like magically gives them all like tight pants. Um, I don't know. It just really bugged me. I thought for sure that in the text of the book, they were magical pants. No, they're just, they're magic because of friendship, Andrew. The magic is that they found a pair of jeans that has like a waist size that like if one of them wears a belt, it works. Like it's, yeah, it's not magic magic. Oh my God. I totally misunderstood that. (laughs) I literally thought, Sorry, I literally thought that it was like a an uncut gem situation where like whoever has the gem wins is like unstoppable. And then no. like the, the second Sandler gives it up, he's doomed. I literally thought that was what was happening. No. <laughs> I did have some clever clever movie magic in the movie though where I believe Blake Lively takes off the jeans and hands them to America Ferrera in the same shot. Like they they take off and put on the jeans in the same shot. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's pretty cool. Because for some reason, two of them decide to ch- change in the middle of this thrift shop. <laughs> Blake Lively is an outgoing, sexy girl, and she knows it. But I wouldn't think America Fur would have the same body positivity and comfort. I agree. They are, to be fair, behind a little screen. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're not like in the middle of the shop. There does so. not appear to be anyone working in this shop also. <laughs> now, Hannah, yeah. you're you're not referring to the screen through which you view, you view the film. No, no, okay. no. There's like a little folding paneled screen behind America Ferrera where they are all sort of like, it's like if they all stepped into a stall together, which is fine and normal. I just love the idea that like pornography is modest because you're like, oh, I mean, they've gone behind this little screen. <laughs> we can potentially cut this if it doesn't bear fruit. <coughs> But I, I'm just interested to hear. I kind of warned you guys I was going to ask about this. Um, what is your like experience with maintaining long-distance friendships? Because I have found it very difficult over the years and kind of 
sometimes catastrophic to to certain relationships. Yeah, I'm the worst at it. I'm really bad at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's, I, I've always struggled with people who are fair weather, you know, friends who sort of just like don't put in the effort because I, I tend to be that person who throws the effort in. I mean, this group became a group because I committed hours and hours to creating stupid film trivia. Totally. So that we could all spend time together. Um, and yeah, I have, I have never found it to be catastrophic in the sense of like, it comes to blows or heated or fighting, but I just feel like I, I have a lot of friendships that te- long distance friendships that tend to sort of just like fade out. Mm-hmm. But I've never had in this sort of kind of perspective. Like it's more like okay, we were in college together, now we're not in college together, and we'll never be in the same place again. Whereas like it's interesting that this is sort of a confined distance, where it's like they're still communicating, they will see each other again. It's not like they're it's not a we're seniors in high school we're not going to see it's not book smart you know or they have mm-hmm. to have one last adventure before they go away it's people who are going to have another year together and if bethesda is to be believed we'll never leave bethesda because it's a small town in the middle of nowhere and no <laughs> one goes anywhere from bethesda so yeah i just think it's i've never had the kind of uh timeline for a long distance friendship that these girls are experiencing you bring up a good point too which is that much like a long distance relationship if there is an end date on it if there is a we're all coming back together after the summer that is easier to maintain because there's not the open-ended sense of doom of like my friend used to live across the street now he's in kansas what the fuck do i do yeah i'm really worried i'm gonna lose all my friends when i move from new york really something i'm very stressed about i mean you definitely Um, get the cachet of every time you return you're like a celebrity which is which is nice i hope so you know i made the the choice uh after college to move to chicago which like everyone from my school in maine basically went to new york city or boston and so it's this deliberate choice that i think about all the time and i have honestly been grappling with a lot recently which is like, I don't really want to move to New York City or Boston, but it's still harder six years in. Because like, you know, I still have people that come into my life and then move back out in Chicago because we don't have like a pre-existing bond. And I get jealous because I like hang out with college people in New York City and they're still hanging out with like a robust crew of college people. And it's just weird. It's like, I knew it was going to be hard, but it's just weird that it's it's persisted you know yeah i do really like i had a hard time during quarantine seeing my friends who lived in the same neighborhood and could hang out more easily hanging out without me um or like watching my friends all log the same movie on letterboxd like they watched oh, a movie that together feeling, and i wasn't invited that is a stake in the heart the letterboxd it is, feeling oh it hurts it even really when hurts they're apart and they like did it on netflix party it's like if i wasn't there yeah, my friends have gotten very into, like, sync watching, where we all just, like, hit play at the same time and then yeah. text each other, which I'm only occasionally invited to. And I just have to, like, which is fine. I'm trying so hard to, like, put myself in the mindset of, like, my friends are allowed to do things without me. Right. That's not a that's not an indication on how much they like me. It's okay. And when I leave the city and they continue to do things without me, as they should, that will not hurt my feelings. That will have to be okay. 
Um, but it is really hard to like reconcile your mind around like, well, my, my friends continue to be in the same location. I've made a different choice and I'm missing out on so much. Not to, um, suggest that you are unlovable, but <laughs> oh, <it's so laughs> true. God. no, uh, Ouch, I, I, man. I, I'm, I'm completely kidding. You know, we love you, but, um, uh, just, uh, you know, I, I've been struggling with that people hanging out without me thing a little bit, too. And I wonder, in your acceptance of it, because I'm not there, I'm, like, very much not accepting it. I in mean, your, am I really? In, in your acceptance of it, though, it. doesn't it require the perspective to say, oh, yes, when I'm with my friends, sometimes we exclude a sixth person? Like, if you're, if you're accepting yeah, being right. excluded, in my case... It just bothers me because I don't see that happening. It, it all feels bad. Every version of it is bad and terrible. Human beings were never designed to maintain long distance relationships. <laughs> you were just supposed to like get on your horse and leave town and never see your family again. Like, well, in the in the age of the internet, have you had any? Either of you had any friendships that, aside from these, that began <laughs> online? So did not yes. have that switch. Yeah, I have a friend. Cal, who we met, and he was living, I think, in Canada. Then he moved to Glasgow. Now he's back in Canada. He's come to visit me like twice. Great friend, one of my best friends. I've seen him in person maybe two or three times, and we've maintained it. But again, like I'm, I'm not good at keeping up the friendship. And yes. for me, what I find very vital in my friendships that have lasted a long time is the ability to say like. We don't need to check in with each other every day or every week or every month. What matters is that when we do get back together, it feels like nothing has ever changed and we're still having fun and we still connect to each other. Like that's what makes a friendship work for me. And I think like a lot of people have like friend degradation over time that if you're not keeping up your friendship degrades, which is normal. I don't have that. I'm just like, pause, put a pin in it. See you in two years. Um, and I, that's a that's a me problem, I think. Like that means that I lose a lot of friendships. That doesn't sound probably. like a problem. Uh, so uh, sitting on the other side of it, I yeah. I am not great at that. Or I have friendships like that where we'll just pause and we pick it back up, and it feels like it always did. But it 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 sort of chips away at my self esteem because if I have enough of those friendships, which I do, I start to be like, oh, I am like no one's top five friend. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And and yeah. and it causes me, I think, to get, in some cases, a little toxic. Because, like, mm. early quarantine, right, I make a friend online. And I have friends online who I have a similar relationship to what you were saying, where we just check in on each other every once in a while. Sometimes we meet up. It's nice. But early quarantine, when everyone's heart is just filled with doom... Um, I make a friend online and basically we're talking like every day, right? And we're, it's, it's, it's too much communication, honestly. It's like, we're very much like leaning on each other for like, I am feeling like I don't get to see any friends. So I'm like using this relationship to have a friend in my pocket at all times. And it led to this blow up. I mean, it probably lasted like seven months and it led to this blow up. That's totally my fault. I, and I'm glad to have learned from it, but where I legitimately was like, I feel like I've provided so much support to you in this time that's stressful for all of us, and you owe me a level of support, which is fucked up. 
Yeah, but also fair. I mean, I've, I've had friendships where I'm like, I mean, sort of historically in the history of Hannah, my best friend from college took advantage of me emotionally and financially for like six years of my fucking life. And eventually I was like, you know what? Actually, we do not have a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. You've got to pay me back for some of this stuff in some capacity because I just feel like I'm being taken advantage of. Right. And she just fucking didn't. And now we're not friends. So that like bringing that up as as an issue, like actually was the breaking point. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Like there was, I mean, like the moment that I was like, you are no longer allowed to take advantage of me. She was like, okay, bye. Horrifying. Bad friend. Really bad friend. So, you know, I, I don't think you're unreasonable to want to be, to get as much out of a relationship as you're putting into it. Well, it's a, it's a, the same concept, what you're talking about, what I'm talking about, but you have a paper trail. And, and the thing, <laughs> the thing that's frustrating for me is that like, and this thing, I'm constantly trying to write about this and I haven't really figured it out. But like, the thing that's frustrating for me is the feeling of like, feeling like you put a certain amount into a relationship with someone. And then because it's an emotional transaction, it's not ridiculous for them to turn around and say, you actually put, you know, less in. We've actually been putting less in and the amount you're demanding is unreasonable. Hmm. And it's it it's something about all interpersonal relationships that I find very tough. Is I I would like to, I would like to feel like when I'm feeling very bonded to someone that we're like at the same level of bonded. But eventually, that yeah. often turns out to not be true. And sometimes I'm on the other side. Sometimes I'm the shitty one taking advantage. I'm not painting myself as a saint. Sure, I don't. Me either. I I too am often a bad friend. I don't keep up. I'm really bad about reaching out. Mm -hmm. I just like don't know what to say. Like my friends, you know, I'm just like, so what's up, dude? You know, like there yeah. isn't, and I feel like that's stupid and embarrassing, so I don't do it. And then next thing you know, I haven't talked to my friend in a really long time. I mean, and they think that I'm being shitty, which is right, but I am being shitty to them because they need more from me, and I can't do it. Right. Right. That's the other tough part is like being available to people even when you're in kind of a rough patch. Because mm -hmm. I get very down sometimes where I'm like, oh, I I feel like I'm always available for people, but, but people are only open to me when they're doing exceptionally well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure people feel the same way about me. I mean, I'm sure Andrew's sitting there yeah. just being like... You were a shitty friend to me for six years before, really we started this, before we started this goddamn so podcast. <laughs> you never texted me back. Now you're telling me to log on on time. <laughs> I will say also when like my friends, whatever, post, and I'm guilty of this too, posting on Instagram, it's like, I'm sad, which is obviously a call for like, talk to me. Right. I sometimes am like, well, I feel like maybe it's a shitty move to be like, hey, I saw that you were sad. What's up? Mm -mm. Maybe like that's not. The, and so I don't do it because it seems <laughs> awkward. And then I'm an, an even worse friend who saw it and was just like, that's not my business. I think I've <laughs> done that shitty. to both of you, right? I think I've done no, it. No, yeah. And I appreciate it. Every time you're like, hey, I hope you're oh, doing yeah. okay. I, I do mean, really appreciate it. You've come to that. visit me when I said I was sad. Like you've taken the extra mile, which I mean, you're a great there friend, were times Andrew. in your you life, should feel Andrew, good. <laughs> where you were also like not good at social media or texting back. And I was like, Oh, this guy hates me. <laughs> right. Well, social media, I'm one of those people I totally checked out on. And it's not because I think it's bad or it's not because I think it's like the end of society or whatever. It's just because I used it to toxic ends. You know, I was like, you know, looking up 
you know, uh, girlfriends, ex-boyfriends on social media and being like, look at that jawline, you know, like stuff like that. (laughs) It's very impressive that you were able to identify that in yourself and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. It is very admirable. I, I, I know that it's like the least, um, attractive trait to, to toot your own horn after receiving a compliment, but it is like my best trait, I think, is that ever since, ever since I was able to do the big one, ever since I was able to be like, your drinking is destructive and you need to stop, I now basically live by, if something is making you feel bad, you need to stop. And none of them has been as hard as the first, which is the best part. It's like getting off social media is not as hard as getting sober. So, Well, congrats. You're a great guy and a good friend, and I'm happy to have you as a long-distance buddy. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very nice to, to have you guys as long-distance pals. I think the, the, the most golden way to maintain a long-distance friendship is essentially what we're doing, which is that like... Scheduled meetings? Yes, I actually believe that. And, and I, I think that in the absence of um in the absence of a plan in the absence of a hobby that things will just fall apart because you know we'll prioritize whatever over each other if we're just like i'll see you around maybe we'll do something sometime and like right impossible right and andrew we talked about earlier andrew is like a, a a doer and like a driver and like a put thing togetherer but in a certain way, all three of us are that. I mean, because like, you know, you 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 will joke probably, Hannah, about how you don't, you know, do as much for the podcast or whatever. <laughs> but like, you know, we're all showing up having done, having read the books. And most importantly, like caring about it enough to like want to speak about it, which is a form of work. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if I didn't like you guys, I wouldn't read the books. It's really just an excuse to like talk to some friends but you'd still who come I like. To the podcast? You just no, go, that too. Like I probably would just be like real in and out because I wasn't having fun because I didn't like you guys. But I like you guys enough that I do want to talk to you every couple of weeks, face to face, quote unquote, face to face. And I'm very pleased to do it. You know, it's like a real highlight in my little life. You know. That's all. I like the two Andrews and when we have the odd <laughs> additional person, they're fun too. But, like, I feel like I said this early in the podcast, like, if it was just a book club that we weren't making a podcast, I would like that, too. Yeah. That's good enough for me. Yeah. It's just an excuse to talk to some friends. I think the podcast element just really helps because it makes it makes sure that it happens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas I think otherwise there'd be a lot of, like, I'm missing book club this month. Like, my husband and I are reading Persuasion to each other. I can't come. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Johnny's doing right now. Oh, I bet he is. That jerk. Johnny's sewing a pair of pants rather than reading, (laughs) watching this film. Um, You know, I bet the three of us could do traveling pants. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I I mean, they'd be baggy. They'd be hilarious. That's okay. That I could make them work. I'm chic. (laughs) I mean, if, if it was a if it was a pair of pants that fit me, it would be a jacket for you. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I think I would have to double cuff them, which is one of the rules where so you're not allowed to double cuff the traveling pants. Oh, so. could we wash them though? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, these Gross. pants are Gross. in the waters Gross. of Greece on a Walmart floor in a hospital. Those girls are like... getting infections 
I guarantee it. Now, a hat would fit better for all of us. <laughs> a traveling hat? Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, the sisterhood of the traveling hat. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it, you know, but but I almost feel like wearing a, a specific hat every day would be more of a burden than like a specific pair of pants. <laughs> yeah, as a person who wears the same pair of jeans three, four times a week, that's easy. That's no problem. <laughs> right. And I just don't want to make the same statement all the time. I don't want to have like a Florida Marlins hat four days a week or whatever. Yeah, right. That's a real <laughs> choice. Yeah. Every time I wear a baseball cap, which is not super often, but there's always someone who's like, hey, that's a hat. And I'm like, uh-huh. And if it was the same hat every day, eventually that hey, it's a hat guy would be like, yo, Mighty Ducks. And I'd be like, oh, no, now that's me. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm more than no. just my Mighty Ducks baseball cap. You're really a dating our podcast andrew by calling them the florida marlins a team name they have not had since 2011 which is when we're <laughs> recording <laughs> yes. so this old guy he's gonna run for a second i term. was gonna say yeah, where's I, hope he does. I was gonna say where's osama bin laden <laughs> um, i've told you guys right my my story of hearing that osama bin laden was killed i don't think you have okay no, so i had this experience for real and i've been told in years since that it's very similar to exactly what happens on the newsroom so i was oh god oh my god you had the newsroom well experience? it was a little different so i was on a plane coming back from colorado and nobody on the plane is talking to each other because it's just a plane full of randos and like the the flight lands in connecticut and everybody takes their cell phones out and somebody gets a notification that Osama bin Laden has been killed. And and this passenger. So it's not the newsroom. There are no like captains involved. This passenger <laughs> just yells out to this plane who has not been interacting with each other. Like, hey, we got Osama bin Laden. And then people are high-fiving, cheering. It's wow. very weird. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I love that he gave himself the we. We did it. We got we him. Americans. <laughs> I pitched in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the lolly. Oh. Wow, that is quite an experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that in some way, like my theory, I haven't checked the air date, but I'm assuming that the newsroom writers like it's Aaron based Sorkin. On your experience. I'm assuming Aaron Sorkin was like next to me on the plane. I think he must have been. I mean, the thing about Aaron Sorkin, circling back to Bradley Whitford on the West Wing, which is the best Aaron Sorkin thing that's ever been made. Josh Lyman or the West Wing? The West Wing as a whole. It's the only good Aaron Sorkin. A social network is also good. But like, <laughs> West Wing is the, the pinnacle. And like since then, he has not been able to create something that is like any good. And I think it's because he's taking it too seriously. And like the master stroke, I've been thinking about this recently, so I'm putting it on the record. The master stroke of the West Wing is that he's making something he thinks is important that's actually important instead of like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. He thinks it's important. It's not important at all. And he can't conceptualize like having fun creating a TV mm -hmm. show. He's right. only like, what if we were solving the world's problems every day? And it's like, no, that's the West Wing. <laughs> it's funny you say like he has trouble having fun creating a TV show because he's I love Moose Lucy movie seems to be about how it's not fun to create a TV exactly, show. Exactly. He's like, making art is only important. And you're like, that's not true. I'm sorry, Aaron. That's not true. I also just find the premise of the newsroom infuriating. That he's it's like, really annoying. That he's like, we already know how all the stories played out, so we can decide which of our characters is right about stuff. 
Yeah. And then he's like, you know who's always wrong? The women. And you're like, whoa. Bad. He's Yikes. really uh, moved into a new sphere also now because it's not like he's doing social network with David Fincher directing. He's now directing. So there's even fewer voices to be like, uh, Aaron, let's uh, not do that. I was on a news staff in college with his niece, though, so oh, I've been fun. in a Sorkin newsroom before. The <laughs> door. <laughs> um, Hannah Blackman, you are in Greece. Okay. And the rest of this setup, would you recommend the film? Not really. No, I don't think it's like a great teen drama. Um, I'm not. I don't know. No, I didn't really like it. No. <laughs> Andrew Marco, you are making a documentary. You've taken a part-time job to fund the documentary you're making. Your uh-huh. camera person dies of childhood or teen or however old she is, leukemia. As you ball your eyes out, you search through her belongings, and you find a tape that she made for you to be played posthumously. You put it in, and it is the film... The Jane Austen book club At which point you say Thank fucking god It wasn't Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants There's no way you'd recommend this right I mean So I mean Jane Austen book club was An anomaly it's a treat It had Greg You can't compare it There's nothing in this movie That lives up to any of the weirdness of that (laughs) I, I did at least appreciate that There was like More going on here Than I thought there would be I thought it was just gonna be Girls go to different places And fall in love Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by the depth of some of its plot. I didn't hate watching it. I think the cast, save for Alexis Bledel, are all very good actors who did not phone in their performances. So, you know, like, if it was on TV and someone's like, should we watch this? I wouldn't be like, change the channel right away. I'd be like, yeah, let's watch 10 minutes. You know, see, it's... Yeah. See if we're enjoying it. Um, I'm certainly interested to learn more about the book arcs because I don't know how they took three books and made them into one movie <laughs> for the sequel. And that their ge- Genesis point was the fourth book. Uh, so I'm certainly sort of curious. I If they ever make the third one, we'll, we'll have to see it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Even yeah. if we don't see the second one, I feel like we've got to <laughs> follow up with these characters. Someone asked me the question. Andrew Overby. You have taken a sexy soccer trip to Mexico. Yes. It didn't exactly go like you wanted it to go, but you learned some life lessons. On the flight home, <laughs> you're on a plane that has a little TV in the back of the seat, and you have the option to watch Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Do you recommend to your seatmate, hey, let's watch this one? I thought you were going to say that the plane lands and somebody gets a text saying that Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants has been released. <laughs> And yells <laughs> yells it out to the flight Ooh, full of people. That's so much better. <laughs> oh. um, I'm sorry, Andrew. I let you down. So the thing is, I didn't really like the movie. Um, I am interested to watch the sequel just because the ideas, the idea of sequels interests me. Like they have written such strange and kind of bad characters and arcs that I wonder how they're going to handle extending them into another summer. Because it feels like now they're starting from a bad place. Which makes me curious <laughs> to see whether they salvage it or whether we just fall further down the hole. Also, random thought while I'm thinking about Alexis Bledel, having recently watched Last Night in Soho, is Thomas and Mackenzie the her successor of adult woman but talk like baby? 
<laughs> I'm so glad you said that, Andrew. I'm so glad. Yes. Oh, you're you're not being so, sarcastic. Yeah. You agree? No, no. I genuinely like. I get that Thomas and Mackenzie is like a hot upcoming actress. I don't really get it. And she do talk like a baby. She was amazing in Leave No Trace, the movie where she was li- living in the woods, but when she was mm. like an actual but- child. But um, yes, it, it was so distracting. And last night in Soho, I was like, at what point? does she age up? Because she's obviously doing a child performance. Let's do the time jump. (laughs) Very much doing like a baby voice in that movie. Her mouth is tiny. I have never seen a tiny (laughs) mouth. Yeah, I guess I thought she was younger in Jojo Rabbit, given that the boy in that is like 12. I assumed she was like 15, not like an adult who is now doing other movies. But yeah, I watched she may be the true history of the Kelly gang where she's playing like an adult woman who has a baby. And I was like, no, this is fucked up. This is <laughs> She'd be great at I, talking to it though. I, I've got a question. Do we think in this third sisterhood of the traveling pants film, they will have room for the spouses of all these actresses. Cause I think the, we could really do with some like David a real Cross. life spouses. Yeah, David Cross, Ryan Reynolds, Vincent, whatever his last name Kartheiser. is. I don't know. If, I don't know if America Ferrer is married to anyone noteworthy. I don't care but, if she is or not. Bring him in. Or yeah, whoever. America like, Ferrer is married to Ryan Pierce William. He, sh- I, he could direct it. I love it when real life husband and wives play husband and wives. I would yeah. I would lose it. I would love it. Best movie of the year. Like, <laughs> I, would, I, would just, I can't. I love watching people be in love. It's. I just see, think David Cross and Ryan Reynolds have needed to share the screen and... This yeah, seeing those two human beings stand next to each other would be exquisite. <laughs> that's that's how I feel about the beginning of uh, Executive Decision when it's Steven Seagal and Kurt Russell together. I'm like, I, I'm seeing them together, but I there's also a division in my brain. Like, there's a line down the middle of the screen <laughs> because they cannot inhabit the same space. Listener, we have a podcast. It's called it's called Authorized Novelizations Podcast, but hopefully someday we'll become popular enough that we can drop the last two words and still be found in searches. <laughs> We're praying. So in order to reach that point where we can just be authorized like we've always dreamed, we need you to rate the podcast. I mean, prefer- preferably five stars. Rating it something else would maybe be detrimental to us. <laughs> um, please review it. Uh, please subscribe to it. I'll also, just tell your friends. Uh, it's pretty niche. But, you know, you don't have to read the books. Uh, that'd be crazy if we tried to enforce that you did. Uh, just calling up all 50 listeners. Being like, yeah, I got a pop quiz for you. <laughs> um, but yeah. I couldn't even pass that. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. Our second season starts on January 6th, 2022. With Batman and Robin, our guest is Paxton Holly, And I wanted to say... Just as a sign-off tonight. That even though there's no votes coming up, you should vote, just in general. Let your voice be heard. It's your right as a citizen. Uh, And in between voting periods, write your congressperson about anything that you feel strongly about. Because, uh, you know, voice is synonymous with democracy. Okay, good night. Mm -hmm.